This episode of Virtual Criminality contains spoilers for the video game Slender the Arrival. Welcome to Virtual Criminality. I'm Ian Higton and in this podcast I combine two of my greatest passions, video gaming and true crime, into one gruesome whole. Each episode of Virtual Criminality will focus on a different video game villain and I'll be presenting their fictional stories as fact in the style of a true crime podcast. That means along with all the usual gory serial killer stuff that you'd expect from a real world true crime podcast, there'll also be times when we get to explore not only the fantastical but the supernatural too. So if like me you're into true crime, video game theories and creepypastas, you my friends have come to the right place. The case you're about to hear is going to seem far-fetched and unbelievable at first, and I should know, I thought the same when I first started researching it. But just as I did, you too will soon come to see that this investigation contains solid, undeniable and irrefutable proof of the existence of an ancient abomination that's known simply as the Slender Man. Some of you may have already heard the legends of the Slender Man before, that he stalks his targets when they're walking alone in the woods at night, before snatching them up, impaling them on trees and removing their organs. Others may have heard that he is more likely to watch people from afar, appearing as a black shape in the darkness or a glimpse of movement seen out of the corner of someone's eye. From these places he would trail his chosen victims for days, months or sometimes even years, tormenting them from the shadows and striking when their guard was down. Then, when they were unable to cope with the anguish any longer, they would slowly descend into an inescapable paranoid madness, one that would ultimately allow the Slender Man to control their minds and bend them to his will, forcing them to act based on his own terrible wants and needs. And yes, I know that this may sound far too absurd to be true, but I guarantee you that, by the end of this episode, you will believe in the Slender Man too, and you will understand the true extent of his evil. The small Canadian forest town of Oakside, Alberta, has been plagued by stories of hauntings and curses ever since it was first established as a trading post way back in 1834. Tales of missing or mysteriously murdered fur trappers can be found in many a history book from that time, and as the town began to expand, so too did the number of inexplicable deaths and disappearances. Due to its close proximity to the foot of the Rocky Mountains, Oakside played an important role in the gold rush in that area in the 1840s, as placer gold deposits were found in many of the rivers that ran eastwards from the Rockies and through Alberta. This boosted the local population massively as fortune hunters rushed to the region to pan the rivers for gold. But in 1901, after reports of missing surveyors and prospectors rapidly began to escalate, the local police mandated that all intended routes of travel must be given to them prior to a person's departure. This did little to stop the steady flow of lost travellers, though, and through official records from the time, it's plain to see that at least one person per year would vanish without a trace from the area, never to return. Out of the mountain of stories available from this time, the most heavily documented concerns the Matheson family, a group of settlers who moved from Germany to Canada at some point during the 1850s. 
The Mathesons were farmers by trade and, once they had arrived in Oakside, they partnered with the local Hayes family, who helped them build their very own farmstead, complete with two two-storey houses, one for each family, a barn, a grain silo and even a chapel and graveyard where members of both families were eventually laid to rest. Although abandoned now, the Matheson farmstead still stands to this day, albeit in a very rundown state, and it was there in an underground cellar built for cold storage that a pair of urban explorers stumbled across a treasure trove of letters and writings from various members of the family. Stashed inside a rusty tin box that was jammed between two old shelving units, these letters had been lost for over a hundred years. But in May 2010, after returning from their trip, the explorers scanned the contents of the box and uploaded the images to the R Old Letters subreddit, where they can still be found to this day. The majority of the 50 or so documents found inside that box are admittedly pretty unremarkable, and they're mainly made up of scrawled accounts detailing farmstead expenses, but there was also a collection of standard everyday communications between members of both families. This handwritten message from Maggie Matheson to her younger sister Rose is a good example of this. Rose, it reads, we're going into the cellar tonight for another game of hide-and-seek. Father won't return from his errand to Red Deer until the morning, and Norm says he's found a lantern, so he can take us there after dark if we all meet by the chapel after tonight's dinner. Norm, by the way, is Norman Hayes, the Hayes family's only son. I know you hate the rancid smell of petrol down there, but it'll be fun, I promise, Maggie continued. P.S. Don't tell Patty, she'll tell on us. The patty mentioned there is Patricia Matheson, the youngest daughter of the Matheson family. Not all of the documents are as innocent as that one, though, and there are four in particular which paint an incredibly dark picture that points to some truly troubling events on the Matheson farm. The first of these documents consists of two water-damaged pages that have seemingly been torn straight out of Rose Matheson's personal diary. And the first one of those reads... Dearest Diary, Patricia still has yet to come home. Mother insists she ran off to search for wildflowers again, but I know that's not true. It was that man, that thing Grandmother keeps ranting on about. Rose's grandmother that she's referring to here was Frieda Matheson, one of the original Matheson settlers who had arrived from Germany. I do not think she's mad, Rose continues. I have seen the man myself. He watches us as we play. Patty went to him, I just know it. If only Mother would listen. I wonder when she'll come home. That diary entry is accompanied by a crude drawing of the Matheson's Chapel, which in real life is a small, whitewashed wooden building with a simple cross set atop its steeple. Here it's sketched out using the same black ink that Rose had used to write her diary entry, but due to its age and the water damage, the once straight lines are now smudged and faded. Just above the chapel, Rose has drawn two fluffy clouds, while in front of it, on the left-hand side of the page, is a large four-petaled flower, which is possibly a reference to the wildflowers that Maggie mentioned in her letter to Rose. It's what's drawn on the right-hand side of the paper, just below the chapel, that has captured the attention of most of the people who have viewed these pages, though. At first glance, it seems to be your standard child-drawn stick person, but when you look at it in the context of Rose's diary entry, when she talks about that man, that thing, 
your attention is quickly drawn to the figure's arms. They are far too long to be human arms, and they seem to have a weight about them, falling all the way down from its shoulders to the ground like heavy tentacles, where their tapered ends rest at an angle as if they're being dragged along the floor. Now, if it weren't for the letters that follow, this diary page and the creepy, aged illustration that comes with it could be easily dismissed as nothing more than the product of an over-imaginative child's mind. But, as you'll soon see, Patricia wasn't the only Matheson child to go missing from the farm. This next letter is from Frida Matheson's sister, Francisca, and in order for it to be a part of this collection, it would have had to have been posted by Francisca from her hometown of Heubach, Germany. Its faded words are written in black ink on yellowing paper that bears the signs of having been crumpled up into a ball at some point in the past. However, its surface also still bears the straight, deep fog lines from when it would have travelled across the seas in an envelope. The letter reads, Dearest Frida, Though my heart still pains for your missing children, I fear for your health, my sweet sister. You mustn't worry your mind with those twisted tales of our youth. You know as well as I they were merely tales to keep us all in good behaviour. If only mother knew what those silly legends would do to you. Though I have no recollection of the one you mention. Was it from one of mother's books you took with you? I wish I was there with you now in your time of need, rather than whittling my days away alone. I wish you well, an ocean away. May my thoughts and prayers reach you, Francisca. There's no record of the letter that Frida would have sent to Francisca to initiate such a concerned response, but a quick search on newspaperarchive.com for the term Matheson does bring up an interesting article from Das Berliner Journal, dated October 2nd, 1904. Das Berliner Journal was a German-language newspaper published in West Canada that was a source of foreign and domestic news for new and settled German Canadians, and in one short article, the paper tells of a young boy named Walter Matheson who disappeared from his family's farm in Oakside. From census records and an old family photograph, we know for certain that there was a Walter in the Matheson family, and also that he was the youngest of Frieda Matheson's grandchildren. So it seems highly likely that this story is about the same family. The article then goes on to presume that Walter had either been kidnapped by an unknown person or had wandered off by himself into the nearby forest and gotten lost. Allegedly, he was put to bed by his mother Elizabeth on the night of September the 26th, but that following morning, as she went to wake him, she discovered that his bed was empty and that his bedroom window was wide open. One of the most concerning parts of this article, though, is a short paragraph near the end that mentions that Walter is the second one of the Matheson's children to go missing that year, with the first being his older sister, who is not named in the article, but is assumed to be Maggie Matheson. There are no follow-up news articles to be found on this matter, so we have no real idea if Walter or Maggie were ever found. But others who have researched this case in the past have pointed out the concerning fact that no gravestones can be found for either little Walter or his older sister Maggie anywhere in the Matheson Chapel Cemetery. So, while we do have definite proof that both of these children did exist, thanks to the family photograph and Maggie's note, at some point in 1904, it seems like they both just dropped off the face of the earth, never to be seen again. 
But could these abductions be tied to the mysterious man that Rose talked about in her diary? That's what some people believe, especially when taking the next page from the scans into account. Now, what makes this document different from the others is that it seems to be a page from an actual book, rather than a handwritten note like all the others. Once again, the paper is yellowed slightly through age, and its corners and edges show signs of mould damage due to storage in damp conditions. The page seems to have been torn from some kind of German-language textbook, and the woodcut illustration on its surface shows a young girl sitting on a stool by the wall of a house with a look of absolute fear on her face. That expression could only have been caused by the thing standing next to her, a strange skeletal beast that can be seen towering over the child. Its skull is visible, but rather than resembling something mammalian, it has an almost insect-like quality to its shape, and it seems to lack a jaw or a mouth of any kind. There are spiralled, goat-like horns set at the back of its skull, and twisting black spikes can be seen running down its elongated neck to the top of its shoulders. Its torso is an indistinguishable mess of what seems to be visible internal organs, and there are worm-like tentacles protruding from its lower back, forming a trio of tails. The beast also has four limbs, but they're growing out of its body in bizarre places, making it hard to tell whether they're meant to be legs or arms, and they're all of varying lengths as well. Two are short and two are overly long, but each one seems to end in a small, bony hand, a couple of which are in the process of reaching out and grabbing the child by the head and the lower leg. Finally, this disturbing illustration is encircled by an ornately crafted border that is shaped at the bottom to fit in the large, bold text of the German word Verzweiflung, which in English simply means despair or distress. So how then does this ancient woodcut printing tie into the disappearances of the three Matheson children, Walter, Patricia and Maggie? Although they have been unable to pinpoint the exact book that the Vusfeiflung page may have come from, some amateur historians have attempted to date the image, and they believe it could be linked in some way to 13th century Germanic paganistic beliefs. Due to the sentences from Francisca's letter in which she wrote, If only Mother knew what those silly legends would do to you, and Was it from one of Mother's books you took with you? People have theorised that perhaps Frida had taken an old Germanic spellbook with her to Canada, one that she had then presumably spent her evenings experimenting with until one day finding out that she had accidentally awoken some kind of ancient demonic entity. While seemingly far-fetched, this theory is backed up by a rather solid piece of physical evidence, the final document of note found on the Matheson's farmstead. It's handwritten by Frieda Matheson herself, and it seems to take the form of both a desperate confession and a harrowing suicide note. It reads, I seek only salvation for myself and my family from that demon sent to torment my life. I brought the devil's wrath upon my family. I did this. I went searching for this demon. I brought him into our lives. I invoked his arrival. How could I have been so blind as to manifest such evil? Why could I not let old legends die? 
I alone should bear this burden. Why must my grandchildren suffer for my imprudence? They will never come home. That archfiend has them now. We must all bear this burden. We must all repent for our ignorance and rid this world of this demon for good. None ever shall confront this evil ever again. It dies with us. May the fire cleanse our souls and burn our sins. Frieda Matheson While the things that Frieda alleges in her note may seem frankly unbelievable to most people, she at least seems utterly convinced that, by meddling with unseen forces, she had condemned her grandchildren to a fate worse than death at the hands of what she calls an arch-fiend. The fear, anger, guilt and desperation in her words are palpable and for anyone who has researched this case in the past, those final two sentences are more than enough to make their blood run cold. None ever shall confront this evil ever again. It dies with us. May the fire cleanse our souls and burn our sins. After writing those words, Frieda neatly folded the letter three times, placed it somewhere where her family would find it, and then she did something utterly, unfathomably cruel. She locked herself, her one remaining granddaughter Rose, and both Norman Hayes and his mother Ada inside the Hayes' farmhouse and then set it on fire, burning all four of them alive in the process. While there are no official records of this tragedy ever occurring, the physical proof can be seen by anyone who takes a trip to the Matheson farmstead and heads across the back field towards the chapel. There, between the back barn and the chapel, lies the charred ruins of the old Hayes house, a slowly rotting monument to the horrors that once unfolded there. Only fragments of it remain now, of course, but small splinters of charcoal wood still jut out from the hard, dry dirt to this day, marking the spot where the walls and the foundations of the house once stood before the fire took hold. Final concrete confirmation of this deadly fire and the innocent lives it claimed can be found by hopping the fence that separates the ruins of the Hayes House and the Matheson Chapel Cemetery. There's plenty of footage out there on YouTube from explorers who've visited the site previously and in some of these videos people can be seen inspecting each of the site's 19 gravestones. Among them lie the remains of various members of the Matheson and Hayes families, along with some members of a Woods family too. But it's the headstones for Ada, Rose, Norman and Frieda that draw the most attention, as, although their birth dates differ, they all display the same year of death. Ada Hayes died aged 33 in 1905. Her son Norman Hayes died with her aged 11 in 1905. Rose Matheson died aged 14 in 1905 and finally, standing away from the rest of the family as if outcast by her kin, lies the gravestone for Rose's grandmother, Frieda Matheson, who died at aged 85, also in 1905. Of course, there are many naysayers out there who have attempted to put a more rational spin on the happenings on the Matheson farmstead, and plenty of compelling arguments have been made that can put pretty much everything that I've just told you firmly into the realms of fiction. One thing is for certain, however, and that is the fact that, after the brutal fire of 1905, disappearances in the Oakside area dried up almost instantly. 
For non-believers, this fact is just one small thread in a long string of coincidences. But for those of us out there who have been digging deep into the events in the area, it seemed like perhaps Frida had indeed managed to not only break the hex that she had inflicted on her family, but also perhaps the curse on the surrounding land as well. Or at least, that's what everyone thought. After the fire in 1905, the remaining members of the Matheson clan began to slowly move away from the farmstead. The memories of what had occurred there were just too painful, and these daily reminders of those they lost soon became unbearable. They never sold the land, though. Instead, it remained the property of the Mathesons, and members of the family would often return to tend to the farmland and the gravestones, out of respect for their ancestors. Ownership of the farmstead continued to be passed down through the generations until in 1999 it was inherited by Charles Matheson, whose grandmother was Rose Matheson's aunt, Georgia Matheson. Charles, an Oakside local, was born in 1962 and he lived a normal life in the town, marrying his childhood sweetheart Diane when he was 25 years old. After struggling for many years to conceive a child, the couple went through IVF treatment and in 1990 they finally had a son who they named Charles Matheson Jr. Charlie, as his parents took to calling him, was an energetic young boy who was always up to mischief, but he was friendly, well-spoken and loved by everyone who came into contact with him. From time to time, Charles and Diane would take Charlie for family picnics to the Matheson farmstead, and while Charles cleared the gravestones and fixed up any wear and tear on the farmhouse or chapel, Diane and Charlie would spend their time playing in the fields, chasing butterflies through the long grass or pretending that they were treasure hunters as they explored the rickety old barns and echoey interior of the grain silo. But then, one summer's day in the year 2000, almost 95 years to the day of the Deadly Hayes house fire, something very worrying happened to Charlie. The family were once more visiting the Matheson farmstead, and Charlie, who was 10 years old at this point, was playing hide-and-seek with Diane while Charles was busy repainting one of the chapel walls. According to an interview with Diane in a local Oakside newspaper, nothing seemed amiss at first, but after searching for Charlie for a good ten minutes and not finding him, she began to get the feeling that something was terribly wrong. I shouted his name across the field, but he didn't respond, she explained. So I ran to get Charles, who helped me search for him. As the sun began to go down, we started to get really worried and were about to call the police when Charles remembered that there was a cold storage basement built underneath the ground on the north end of the big field. There were no lights down there, so it was hard to see where we were going, but after a while we heard sobbing coming from one of the side rooms. We rushed towards the noise and there was Charlie, sitting on the floor, hugging his knees and crying his eyes out. Obviously, we grabbed him and took him straight out of there, but he wouldn't talk to us for hours. And when he finally did, all he kept saying was that he had woken the man up. The next day, however, he couldn't remember a thing about it, and he never mentioned the man again. This man, whoever he was, may sound like a figment of a scared child's imagination, but actually, there's a real chance that he could be the reason why the quotes I just read from Diane exist in the first place. That interview ran on the front page of the Oakside Daily when, three weeks later, Charlie vanished again. But this time, he disappeared for good. 
After the incident on the farm, Charlie began to seem more and more withdrawn, and at times he would just suddenly scream out in terror or begin to cry for absolutely no reason. So, in order to try and cheer him up, Diane and Charles decided to take him on a picnic to the local nature reserve, Oakside Park. Back when it was open for business as a tourist attraction, Oakside Park would see a flurry of visitors during the summer months as nature lovers flocked there seeking its beautiful trails that wound their way through the park's dense forest and along the base of the Rocky Mountains. Brochures for the park from that time boasted of an amazing wilderness to explore, wildlife to spot and many on-site activities such as hiking and bike trails to indulge in. It seemed like the ideal holiday destination, aside from one peculiar fact. According to local news reports, as the park began to expand in popularity, many campers would moan about children playing noisily outside of their tents at night. Though these children were never identified, these complaints resulted in a strict campsite curfew, a choice which drove potential campers away, and many people think this led to the eventual closure of the park and its sale in 1997 to the Coleman Mining Company, a company that will play into this story a lot more later on. For now, though, let's concentrate on the park, specifically its huge lake that holidaymakers would use for swimming, canoeing or just relaxing and sunbathing on its sandy shoreline. Diane and Charles had hoped that spending time in these peaceful surroundings would help bring Charlie some comfort and maybe even snap him back to his former self. But instead, their visit to Oakside Lake ended up being the place where they made the worst mistake of their lives. After giving Charlie a bucket and spade to play with, his parents left him to build a sandcastle and walked a short distance up the beach to a small rocky outcrop where they began setting out food for their picnic. According to Diane, Charlie was out of their sight for no more than 60 seconds, but when they looked back at the beach, he was nowhere to be seen. Understandably panicked, the pair began to run up and down the beach, calling out Charlie's name, until all of a sudden a blood-curdling scream echoed from somewhere within the depths of the forest, and it stopped them dead in their tracks. I have never heard my child scream like that, ever, said Diane in the interview, but I knew it was Charlie, I knew it was him, someone must have taken him. Asked by the reporter if perhaps Charlie could have wandered into the water and simply drowned, Diane replied, Look, the police searched that lake for days and they found nothing. He's not in there. I know it. You didn't hear his scream. There is no way he could have made a sound like that if he was drowning. I'll remember it until the day I die. Someone took him. I know it. But if someone did snatch Charlie up and carry him off into the forest, who was it? Some people have theorised that it may have been the man that Charlie spoke of the day that he got lost on the farm, suggesting that this man could have been a drifter who has been linked to a string of child abductions in a nearby city. The police investigating the case, however, found no traces of either Charlie or of a potential abductor, and so his missing persons case remains open to this very day. After the disappearance of Charlie, the happy life that the Mathesons had once known continued to crumble into dust. Unable to cope with the grief from the loss of his son, Charles spiralled into a world of depression and anger. A year after Charlie vanished, he was fired from his job for threatening to assault his boss, and then, six months after that, following yet another blazing row, Diane decided that she just couldn't take it anymore and filed for divorce leaving Charles alone to wallow in his misery in the empty family home. 
Soon Charles began to neglect all but the most basic of his duties, including the upkeep of the Matheson farmstead, which he left to rot away until it became the ramshackle mess that it is today. And then, after over seven years of living like a recluse, on the 6th of September 2009, Charles Matheson's house caught fire while he was still inside. Charles didn't survive. While we'll never know if Charles had intended to die in that house fire, we do now know that, as the Oakside Daily speculated in its headline the following day, the blaze was the result of arson. So it stands to reason that Charles may have been the one to start the fire. The article goes on to state that Oakside fire crews say a blaze at a southeast home resulting in one death may be the result of arson. Fire broke out at the home located just east of Oakside Lake at 11.30pm. Neighbours knew the man living in the home, currently the only known fatality, as agitated and abrasive. He lost his son many years ago. Since then, he's never really acted the same. He would always claim to see his son standing outside his window, staring in, said Kim Rollick, a neighbour who has known the man for 20 years. Authorities say Charles Matheson, 47, died of smoke inhalation. His body was found in the basement of the home shortly after fire crews put out the blaze. Now, obviously, this could all be seen as just a tragic accident, but many people who have followed the age-old case of the Mathesons and their missing children, and I include myself in this, can't help but draw a parallel between those historical happenings and the terrible incident that occurred that fateful September night. Not only had Charles lost a child, just like his ancestors had, but he'd also died as the result of a self-inflicted fire, mirroring the deaths of his great-grandmother Frida and the family members that she had murdered. This multi-generational coincidence isn't the only thing that has led people to believe that something more sinister could have been at play here, though. Found amongst the burnt rubble of Charles's house were pages upon pages of manically scribbled notes and letters, many of which supposedly chronicled his slow descent into a state of paranoid madness. Most of these pages were too damaged to read in full, ruined either by the heat of the fire or by the gallons of water that the firemen had pumped into the house to quench the flames. But some pieces of paper pulled from the ruins were just about legible, and these painted a grim picture of not only Charles's rapidly declining mental health, but also, more concerningly, of what may have caused this decline. Only two of these pages have ever found their way onto the internet, though. If there are more, perhaps the police have them. But at this point, chances are high that these are Charles's last remaining writings. They were discovered in the basement of Charles's house, near where his body was found, by a group of local teenagers who were exploring the wreckage on a dare. Pictures of these notes were quickly uploaded to a now-closed ghost hunting group on Facebook, as it already had quite a few threads about the town of Oakside on it at the time, and as the stories from the town grew in notoriety, these images were soon shared far and wide. The first of these shows a single, crumpled piece of paper. Its edges are burnt and blackened, and its surface has been coloured dark brown by heat damage. Written upon it are the words, What's wrong with this place? Why did this happen to us? No answers anywhere I look. Am I crazy? These things I see at night. I don't know what to think. Ever since Charlie disappeared and Diane left, I must have hit breaking point. I still keep looking. I still hear him sometimes, that cute little laugh. But he's been gone nine years. Why does every day have to hurt so much? 
The words on that page are full of pain and anguish, and as such, it's easy to empathise with the grief that Charles must have been feeling. But that's why the statements, these things I see at night, and I still hear him sometimes, feel so out of place amongst the rest of his guilt-ridden writings. Both of these remarks have been brushed off by sceptics as simple descriptions of nightmares, but when read in the context of this next note, it's hard not to feel like something terrible was going on. I still see him. I keep looking at him. It can't be him, though. I know it can't, but it's so real, the words on the second smoke-blackened notebook page read. Everywhere I go, I hear his voice but it sounds like he's suffering, like it's not the son I knew. I can't escape this torment, this man, this thing. He taunts me. He eats at my mind. Am I doing this to myself? Was it my fault Charlie disappeared? Is this my trial or my punishment? I need to end it. I need to cleanse this place. No more suffering. No one deserves this. It all ends here. It all needs to go. Chillingly, due to its proximity to where Charles's body was discovered, this entry is almost certainly a suicide note. But what makes this message even more disturbing is that his words closely mirror those in Frieda's final letter to her family. While Charles signed off with no more suffering, no one deserves this, it all ends here, it all needs to go, Frieda's message ended with none ever shall confront this evil ever again. It dies with us. May the fire cleanse our souls and burn our sins. And then there's talk of this man, this thing again. Those are the exact same words that Rose used to describe the long-armed figure that had been watching her play shortly before her sister Patricia disappeared. Could this man that appears in all these writings actually be the same demonic entity that Frieda Matheson believed that she had manifested? Is it possible that this thing could also be the man that Charlie woke up that day on the farm and that had then stolen him away into the depths of Oakside Forest? Had Frieda really lifted the curse on her family, or had this archfiend merely been slumbering, only for it to awaken almost a hundred years after her death so that it could continue to terrorising her ancestors. Well, my friends, after having seen what I've seen, I can confidently say that I believe the answer to all of those questions to be a yes. And to be honest with you, just the simple fact that I can admit that with absolutely no doubt in my mind chills me to the bone. But unfortunately, you're going to need to wait a little while longer to hear all about the rest of this case. I was aiming to do a shorter episode this month as November is always very busy for me, but there ended up being so much evidence available that I overran my production time massively. On the plus side though, part two is mostly written already, so you can expect to hear that sometime in early to mid-December. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Virtual Criminality. If you enjoyed it, do follow Virtual Crime Pod on Twitter, subscribe to this podcast wherever you can to hear the next episode as soon as it's uploaded, share it with your true crime stroke video game loving friends, and if you're feeling really generous, please do leave a review on your podcast app of choice. They all help to boost the visibility of the show. Oh, and did you know that Virtual Criminality is also a video series? 
I've used video game footage to turn every single episode of Virtual Criminality into a true crime video series, and they're all available to watch right now over on my YouTube channel, Platform32, a link to which I've included in the description for this episode. Anyway, thanks once again for listening. I'm aiming to be back in just a couple of weeks' time with the second part of this episode. So, hopefully, I'll see you then.